0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
1: Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Chris Blattman, who is a professor in the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, and also the author of this book why we fight the roots of war and the paths to peace. So Chris, I think this is a very ambitious book, right? You're trying to tackle big issue, which is war and conflict and violence. This is a topic which for some reason, and I haven't been able to figure this out, is has not really been addressed by people with an economics background, right? Economists. I mean, economists tend to focus on environments where the rules of interacting and transacting are very well defined, right? Where contracts can be written, commitments can be exercised. And we also even veer in a direction where information is usually pretty easily accessible and decision makers are not affected all that much by sort of emotions and other things. Now, I think economists have begun to push the boundaries of all of those stereotypical economics models, but for the most part, conflict, war, and violence has been the domain of Mm -hmm. political scientists, been the domain of sociologists, maybe the domain of even anthropologists, and so When we think about economists uh, approaching this issue, to me it seems very natural because I teach strategy, and in strategy, it's all about competition, it's all about conflict, it's all about negotiations. And so I say strategy is the domain of business, war, and sports. And so there are these fundamental underlying principles which are derived in part from game theory, which have applications in all of these domains. So before we dig into your approach to this issue, maybe we can talk about why is it that economists have for the most part sort of stopped short of talking about the vast majority of the human experience which has involved right these situations and these tools
0: yeah so i think it's partly true and i think it's partly not true i'd say you know the strategy of conflict by thomas Schelling is actually one of the most important books written on conflict and a lot of the important i think some of the theory that was has contributed to our understanding of conflict has come from was born in labor economics and law and economics as to why we actually avoid strikes or sometimes have strikes, why we have court battles and don't. And I think there was always a healthy interchange with political science. And then certainly political science carried it a lot forward. It's at the center of that discipline. And at the same time, it's true because I, in some sense, when war became central and when fighting and violence became central to what I worked on. I ended up drifting towards political science. And so I sort of think of myself as both. My first jobs were in political science departments. And I'm still sort of, I think, as much a political scientist as I am an economist. But I would say more and more, it's become more and more of a mainstream subject over the last 15, 20 years in economics. So that it's not just theoretical contributions being made by game theorists, but I think a lot of the, like a healthy amount of the empirical investigations and the pushing of the frontier in civil wars and, gang wars has been made by, you know, people who did their economics PhDs. But the nice thing I'll say, it's very collaborative. I mean, I think both sides are actually both, both, both the other social scientists and economists are playing well together on this subject too.
1: Now, I think you, you're operating at a bunch of different levels. I mean, you talk about kind of interpersonal conflict, right? You talk about honor culture and you know, the kind of violence that can arise in these very low level person to person interactions, and then you work your way up to gangs, and then you work your way up to, you know, large political entities, and you look for commonalities at all levels, and of course, highlight differences. It seems also very ambitious to think about kind of general rules that can apply both at the interpersonal level and at the large-scale geopolitical level. And it seems like it's easy to draw commonalities, right, when you sort of anthropomorphize the kind of political institutions, right? So when we're talking about like, Mm -hmm. you know, Saddam Hussein versus George Bush, it's kind of easy to say, oh, yeah, that's, you know, two people meeting in a dark alley. And in fact, a lot of the differences that we encounter precisely arise because that's not the case, right, that these individual actors are operating in these very complicated social right. and, and, and political structures. So did you ever think of kind of thinking, doing two separate books, right? One for the, right. the right. kind of more gang violence and sort of low-level violence, another one for large geopolitical situations?
0: Actually, I want to distinguish between interpersonal violence and then group violence. And then I think amongst groups, you know, there's a difference between a village and a nation, right? And there's a difference between a gang of 30 people and an army of 30,000. So. I don't want to overstate the similarities, but I think individual interpersonal violence is really its own category. And I dwell on it a little bit in the book because some of the evidence and some of the insights we have comes from individuals and individuals Mm -hmm. do run some of these groups and countries that go to war. So we need to understand them. But I think actually, once we just talk about groups, I think a group of 30, like a well-organized group of 30 and a well-organized village or well-organized nation is, just, is actually, these are not so distinct. There's a huge amount of difference in why they fight with one another, but we learn a lot, I think, about the commonalities. There's just some really basic strategic and psychological group level factors that I think are operating at all these levels. And my personal work is really at this gang and village and like that's my day job. I'm working at this more rebel group level. Like I'm working at this more meso level of groups and a little bit at the individual level. But I wrote a book that was more integrative because everything I was learning just sort of made me realize that all of the lessons from international politics were really relevant and vice versa. And when we focus on the differences. That's what we do as scholars. We spend all of our time focusing on the differences and specializing as I did. So fine, let's do that. But that's then let's do a little bit of integrative looking at the commonalities.
1: And I think one of the main messages of your book is that war and conflict that involves violence is kind of the exception rather than the rule. And this was very eye-opening for me because it's really about perspective, right? I mean, we have a tendency to dwell on violence simply because it's something that we want to eliminate or (laughs) reduce, right? In the same way that, you know, doctors focus on sickness, right? I mean, all they look around and all they see are sick people because they want to intervene when they see sickness. But you're pointing out that for every incidence of violence, there are hundreds, if not thousands Mm -hmm. of of similar incidents that result in some kind of nonviolent resolution. Not to say that there's no conflict, not to say that there's no disagreement, but it doesn't turn into violence because violence has very destructive consequences that that cause the pie to shrink and so in strategy we always talk about building the pie and then capturing your slice of the pie but you know no one yeah. really benefits when the pie is dramatically shrunk so is it just simply that we overestimate violence because we're interested in trying to reduce it like why is it that we fail to see how the baseline condition is one where we peacefully resolve conflict
0: Yeah it's a good question I think I don't think we know. I don't know. The, there, there is a good research. so I can kind of speculate. So for example, everyone has been paying attention to what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, with good reason. Two weeks into Russia's invasion, India accidentally launched a cruise missile at Pakistan and suit. And there's been a relative degree of peace between India and Pakistan over Kashmir for decades. That's only very occasionally spiked into usually very brief violence. So that's the normal state of affairs. So why do we have to scroll through 17 pages of news on our New York Times app before we get to that? I don't think it's the journalists because I, you know, the New York Times, they were actually reporting it. Like all of these news agencies actually had the story. We just didn't read or retweet it or chat about it. And so I think there is this sort of tendency to focus on the violent for the right and the wrong reasons. The right reason is sort of like a doctor. You want doctors to focus on the terminally ill. But you don't want doctors to forget, like, the the normal state of human health is health and that people tend to get better and that most illnesses are short, right? So, yeah, I don't know why we have that sort of blind spot. And, but what it means is the consequences, one, it means is we're often demoralized. We think that conflict and violence is a lot more common than it is. And so why, you know, what can we do about it? And, but the other consequences, we get really rotten at diagnosis and treatment, right? So if you're essentially, if all you're doing is... It's like if I found super incredibly sick people and I tried to sort of list all the things that went wrong with them, I'd find like this laundry list of terrible things, but if I wanted to know what got them into the sickness in the first place, was it their lifestyle? Was it some disease or some gene marker? I need to compare them to people who didn't get sick and find the differences. Right. So we're only going to be good at diagnosis and then at designing treatments, if we like actually pay attention to all the times people didn't find.
1: Right. And at the very local level, where you talk about some of these, later in the book, you talk about interventions. And I find it interesting that some of the interventions that have been effective are built on cognitive behavioral therapy, right? And I found this fascinating because, you know, I think you could probably also apply it to political leaders, right? I mean, the political leaders might be in need of a little bit of CBT.
0: What's interesting is like, it sort of goes back to this point about why focus on all these different levels. And the things that take something like, Let's put aside CBT for just one moment, but take something like mediation. Mediation is designed to solve certain problems that often go wrong. And the reason it works and the reasons it's effective are often the same at the village level and the game level and the country level and the international level. These people who do exactly the same things to some degree, right? To some degree of abstraction. And then cognitive behavioral therapy is something we, we do for individuals to basically make them more rational and not make certain kinds of systematic mistakes. But we do similar types of things again, at every level of society. We socialize ourselves and we try to socialize our leaders in order to have them not make the kinds of systematic, emotional, but also strategic mistakes that are so common. And so, so it's, I think that it's nice just because it's an example of like what you pointed out It's just, why would you pool all this stuff together? And again, it's like,
1: I think this is where we sort of get, we learn something from the commonalities. Yeah, I mean, but the idea that the conflict can be avoided through conversation, some economists would look at this and say, well, you know, this is kind of crazy, right? I mean, this is cheap talk, right? But there's information that is extracted, right, which is going to sort of more clearly define the bargaining space and help them to reach agreement. But there's more than that, right? It's not simply Mm -hmm. about expanding the informational set and, you know, creating greater transparency, which, of course, is one of the things that you're trying to do here, but it's also about subtly weaving together preferences. Could you, I mean, could you talk more about that? Because mediation happens in family dynamics. It happens in litigation contexts, right? Divorces and most lawsuits never actually make it to trial, right? They get settled. And so there's this skill associated with mediation. What exactly is it that a good mediator does?
0: Right. In the book, I, I talk about the reason we don't fight is because war is so costly. And the reason we mm-hmm. do fight is because we ignore or overlook those costs, and there's various, there's a small number of ways we generally do that, and I talk about five in the book. And mediation is essentially a partial solution to at least two or three of those five. There's a whole bunch of ways in which we tend to systematically misperceive a situation there's a whole set of ways in which the situation is uncertain we don't have information as you've said and then when we do want to craft a deal that's sort of stable over time especially as our power on each side is shifting we have to rely on that partner we have to believe they're going to commit to it and finding that deal that thing that we can both commit to is itself something it's not always obvious skilled mediators Mm -hmm. are actually really good at sort of finding those creative arrangements Right. And economists might think of that as sort of reducing some transaction costs around finding an actual stable deal. But that's just sort of, you know, we're getting maybe ahead of ourselves a little bit, but I think the general lesson is that everything that actually helps resolve conflict or keep us from not breaking out into violence, which we avoid most of the time, is something that basically helped us pay attention to the costs and not go down one of these paths that made us choose the costly, like sort of worst option, which is to try to bargain through bloodshed
1: yeah well, a lot of the situations you're describing would kind of fall into the descriptor state of nature right there are no kind of third party enforced contracts available for a lot of these right, folks right, right and commitment problem of course and the problem of time and consistency is one that you reference and so i mean that's an entire domain right how do you come up with these self enforcing deals it goes beyond simply kind of better information right and more transparency and it goes to how do you create commitments? How do you get, maybe you could articulate, I mean, there's five different, <laughs> I, you're right, I kind of raced yeah. through this. We probably should w- articulate all five of these reasons why conflict emerges and why the solutions that we've referenced so far don't apply to all of them. I mean, I think that yeah. you know, the first one with unchecked interest, mediation is going to be less helpful in that situation. But maybe walk through the kind of the, what are the five reasons why people resort to violence uh, sure. rather than Just kind of working it out peacefully?
0: yeah, so every time we resort to violence and what I think it was like prolonged fighting, it's because we've ignored the costs or, or willing to pay them, and that could be our societies or our leaders and so the first of these instances is basically where the person who's deciding or the group that's deciding whether or not to take the larger group to war isn't accountable for most of those costs. so what economists or political scientists would think of as an agency problem, and so the extreme version is a personalized dictator, um maybe not unlike Vladimir Putin, who this means that not only will just discount a lot of the costs, but they may have their own private agendas that war pursues, like material private agendas. Like, I am going to be able to expand my power base and stay in power longer if I fight this war. And so, and that's, that's interesting how little economists and scientists have talked about that as cause of war and really explored it. It's probably the most fundamental and the most common.
1: You know, economists are always talking about the agency problem with respect to corporate behavior, right? Say, leading up to the financial crisis, people would talk about how the leadership of the large investment banks would essentially be able to walk away with all the gains and not have to worry about absorbing the losses. So it it would seem like a natural application of a tool that that economists have been, you know, using. You know, and maybe,
0: maybe it's so natural that people have sort of, I mean, for a theorist, it's trivial. Right. Of course, if the, what I've just described is actually very simple. Now, it's not actually trivial. There's a couple of theory papers that sort of wind us through some of the interesting dynamics that happen, but a lot of the famous game theorists who wrote about war decided to focus their attention on a couple of the other ones we'll get to because they're more strategically complex. You actually, it's not as intuitive, whereas, you know, what I just explained, I think is just obvious to everybody once you explain it, that a dictator is probably more ready to take their people to conflict than a fully checked and balanced one. And so it may be the triviality that meant it was theoretically uninteresting, but then what's peculiar is just how, of those of us who do empirical research, how few people really focus on that, whether they're writing history books or running regressions have really failed to dwell on it. So that's the surprising thing. The fact that it's just, well, it's, we've lost empirical focus on it.
1: But in a sense, I mean, it, it's not entirely obvious because you could argue that if a dictator has sort of a longer time horizon than, say, yeah. a politician who's, who's only there for a short period of time, then the shadow of the future is going to be much much greater for that dictator or that, that dynast. And so one would yeah. think that, you know, you could make a case that individual if he benefits in the short run but there's a large cost in the long run then you're going to be more attuned to that right
0: so that's fair i mean i think there's a lot of ways in which people try to rationalize dictatorial leadership especially at early stages of development my own view and some of the work i'm trying to do right now which is testing this is i think that kind of falls apart when you look at the historical record which is that if we cherry pick the handful of lee kuan yu's and, and sort of, and decide that every dictator can be made in their image, then yes, the world looks very rosy. The Lee Kuan Yew is very exceptional. Most of the autocrats who I think have had sustained success records in growing their societies or keeping them peacefuls are extremely checked and balanced ones. Not all, because not all autocracies are personalized and centralized. And so some of the work I'm doing right now suggests that a lot of the great growth disasters, a lot of the conflicts, a lot of the episodes of political instability and misery happen not only within I'm sorry, within autocracies, but mainly within the more personalized ones where power is essentially unchecked. But, you know, the other thing that we're vulnerable to, I mean, this sort of second category is, you know, the idea that actually a group might be willing to pay the cost of war because they get something that they can only get through fighting. In particular, a leader might get something. And if that leader's unchecked, then we might be vulnerable to their personal, whatever intangible incentives they want or ideological goals. And so, you know, again, to return to this example of Russia and Ukraine, this is the story everybody hears in the newspapers, that mm-hmm. Putin is waging this war either out of a sense of personal glory or a, or a sense of national glory and accomplishment or making up for certain humiliations. That's basically a story that says the Russian people, or more specifically Putin and his cabal, are pursuing this ideological agenda. And the other story that you don't hear quite as often, but I think helps us understand this conflict is the Ukrainians are fighting because they're pursuing an ideological agenda. They're fighting for liberty and they're willing to pay the cost of fighting. And they didn't want to settle. They were offered a semi sovereignty and it was a pretty nasty deal. And they said, no way, which is not, you know, and Americans I think are sympathetic to this because that's the American revolution, right? The American revolution was a tyrannical superpower offered semi sovereignty and Americans were weaker, probably should have taken that deal in some sense but decided that they're, they valued Liberty too much. That's the noble story of the American revolution. I think it's mostly true. And, and that too, is just really saying, well, there's a price to pay, but we're willing to fight for this higher ideal. I think we exaggerate that a little bit, especially in this case with Russia with versus Ukraine, but, but I think it's essential.
1: Right. So in one situation, even if the parties had a perfect crystal ball and they could see what the ultimate mm-hmm. outcome is. I mean, this is what we teach in kind of law and economics, right? The litigants would, if they had perfect vision into where the most likely outcome is if they go to court, they'll just replicate that in a settlement and then save themselves all the cost of litigation. But then there's going to be some people that either going to refuse to realistically acknowledge those probabilities. And that's one type of bias getting in the way. And then there's others who are just simply unwilling to accept that for kind of non-pragmatic reasons.
0: Right, and I think that's kind of the, what I'm trying to center attention on with this. I'm trying to say there's just no regrets. And yeah, you could tell me the settlement, we could look in a crystal ball, but the compromise that is necessary by our relative strength is simply repugnant to me. It's either repugnant to me because it it's, against some ideal I have of liberty or that I deserve this, that this is unjust, or I just wanna cause you pain in order to avoid this settlement. Or it's going to be the case that I actually enjoy the act of fighting and obtaining glory. The fact is though, is that where I think it really matters is if, suppose I'm a leader on one of these sides and I can manufacture an ideological intransigence, Mm -hmm. at least that partial on my side, I can convince my people that certain compromises are repugnant or unjust or not in the interest of the nation. Then what I'm doing, I can narrow the bargaining range and I can narrow the bargaining range in my favor. Right. So I think that's typically what's happening. It's not that glory is just driving us to war. I think it's the leaders are being strategic and saying, let's manufacture an ideology yeah. that shuts off all of the unfavorable compromises. And let's hope that the other guy doesn't do the same thing so successfully that we both shut off any possibility
1: of compromise. So it's like tying your hands. I mean, you used Iran as an example, right? Where in negotiations yeah. the Americans were afraid to force them to their knees, so to speak, right? So if they if one party can convince the other that they Humiliation would be. I mean, we've seen that play out with the Putin story where a lot of people have said, oh, well, you don't want Putin to lose face because, you know, he's going to be very dangerous in that scenario, right? So is that something that's easier to credibly communicate when you are a a dictator, right? Like Saddam Hussein? Or is it something that's easier to communicate when you do have some democratic accountability, right? I mean, democratic accountability, people are going to suffer all the consequences of war. And so that's going to mitigate against war. But then If you're democratically accountable, presumably the ruler could say, look, it's outside of my hands. I need to please the people who are very upset.
0: Yeah. I think we're seeing both happen here, right? I think that a Ukrainian politician will find it very difficult to make some pragmatic compromises to find peace because it will be so unpopular. But I think also the information war is being won by the Ukrainians in many ways. And so I think they've constructed this partly as a bargaining tool. I think it's partly a natural reaction to what is an illegal and horrible invasion. And so I think it does tie the hands of a democratic leader in terms of what compromises they can make. Ultimately, I'm somewhat optimistic about Zelensky's ability and inclinations to make compromises. He's been, from the very beginning, signaled this. And so so I think he he recognizes that there are compromises that are going to need to be made and he may have the credibility to make them on behalf of his people. Yeah, whether or not it's easier for a dictator, I don't know. Uh, yeah, who can play that? I think the some are better at establishing that credibility than others. And frankly, I think it's a big mystery about just whether or not Putin needs to save face or whether he's actually quite pragmatic about it. I actually lean towards him being a lot more pragmatic than most of what you hear in the newspapers, but I don't know him, never met him, not a Russia specialist. So what do I know?
1: Well, one of the reasons why I think you're interested in having a taxonomy of causes of conflict is that depending on the diagnosis, there are different remedies, right? So in the first case where there's this unchecked leader right presumably the remedy would be some kind of targeted intervention if you're trying to kind of impose peace from without and you know i'm thinking of these magnitsky sanctions right so rather than just sort of imposing this sanction that's widespread across the whole country how do you come up with sanctions that really precision target the folks who benefit from the conflict and then presumably that would make them think twice about the conflict. And you talk about the problem with evaluating the efficacy of these sanctions yes. because we don't have any real A-B tests on it.
0: Yeah, sanctions, so economic sanctions, international criminal courts, or just criminal courts in general for subnational conflict. Like, there's lots of ways to sort of use carrots and sticks.
1: So like Charles Taylor, for instance, I think they was hauled before a court, right? And
0: Yeah, actually, first they offered him a carrot. They were like, here's this sweet deal in Nigeria. The way you get a lot of warlords out of, their situation and get them to give up is often by promising them a nice retirement that's no longer a credible promise because eventually a lot of these people including taylor have gotten hauled in front of the like basically not the international criminal court but some P- kind Shea, of international tribunal. Yeah, a, a, some form of international tribunal and that's probably an effective deterrent for certain kinds of behavior i think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that but we don't know because there's a lot of dogs that don't and so we don't know which dictators which warlords have avoided something because of the fear of sanctions we don't know what 12 nasty things might putin have done that he hasn't done because he feared sanctions earlier or he fears greater sanctions
1: and i think one of the examples you reference is the Colombian government going after mm-hmm. the drug warlords right where there it was a very selective stick which was mm-hmm. extradition to the united states mm-hmm. and that seemed to be somewhat effective
0: yeah it has been
1: well we only we never made it past the two yeah <laughs> the first so, one yeah
0: so, uh... so so far well we, we talked about two we talked about leaders who might not bear the cost, and then we talked about leaders or people who are willing to pay the cost for some intangible or ideological goal. So we covered two. The other two others are what game theorists like to talk about in terms of uncertainty and commitment problems, and I think they're these subtle strategic logics that people invented to understand why we don't strike, why we don't have court battles, why we don't have legal battles most of the time, but why when they do occur, they occur. And, And that's not made it out into the public sphere. But they're kind of intuitive. Anyone who's ever played poker, for example, understands what's going on with uncertainty. It's the idea that you don't know what cards your opponent holds. And you have to make a decision about whether to raise or to call or to fold. And under that uncertainty, you have to make some guesses and your guesses might be wrong. So in some cases, war is a gamble. Now, because war is so costly, and neither one of you wants actually to, you know, unlike poker, you're not trying to you know, it's not like when you win a game of poker, you also have to pay this enormous cost of like pain, right? There's no incentive to cooperate there. So that's, it's not a great analogy, but even so your opponent does have an incentive to try to tell you what their cards hold, but you are never really quite sure because they could be bluffing, right? And the optimal strategy when you're worried about a bluff is never to fold all the time and it's never to call all the time, right? It's actually what strategists and game theorists would call a mixed strategy. You're basically gonna sometimes call, sometimes fold. And so that risks a certain amount of war in order to, basically because of this basic uncertain environment. There are, the uncertainty also creates some dynamics of reputation that you might not just, you might, even if you think, you know, like, there's a whole bunch of other poker players watching you, seeing how you play and deciding what kind of player you are based on how you mm-hmm. play. Right. And that's going to carry over into your future. So if you can successfully bluff this one time, maybe you can actually... Mm-hmm. successfully bluff in future people, leave you alone in future, you can build a reputation for toughness. And so that might be an incentive to actually fight war. One time sort of signal to everybody else, just how tough you are. And so these kinds of, this is why game theorists love to get, write these papers, because there's all of these interesting strategic sure. dynamics that that arise from uncertainty, yeah. especially when you have like many observers, many interactions. And so it makes this actually quite complicated. We're very willing to say, oh, you know, Putin made a mistake, he shouldn't have gone in, but You know, and that forgets how, five months ago, how uncertain some of these things were. We didn't know how strong and plucky the Ukrainian resistance would be. We didn't know how unified Western sanctions would be. And we didn't know how strong and capable the Russian military would be. And the idea that Putin would get a bad draw on all three of these things was always within the realm of possibility, but nobody predicted this, least of all, evidently, Vladimir Putin. So we can call that like a mistake in retrospect. And in in part it is, but I think it's more of a gamble and a miscalculation.
1: Well, I think implicit in some of your discussion is what I think of as kind of a venture capital approach to warfare, which is Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's not either or. It's not like, okay, all on war versus peace, but rather a lot of the fighting is designed to elicit information, right, to find out exactly what the bargaining power of your opponent is, right, strategically selecting certain types of conflicts that will – probe the enemy to sort out exactly how strong they are to figure out whether they're bluffing right can you talk a bit about that and when because if you can find out get that information at relatively low cost then you can better decide whether it makes sense to fight or negotiate
0: yeah and so you hold parades with your weapons but you hold missile tests which we see right this is what north korea is constantly doing right right now you have border skirmishes you probe your enemy, you see how they respond. There's a lot of this going on between India and China, for example, and within Kashmir, there's lots of ways in which you, in the book, I also talk about gang banging and the ways that gangs yeah. in Chicago signal, they both probe the toughness of adver- like their adversaries and also signal their toughness. Mm-hmm. Right. And so amidst all this uncertainty, you're constantly trying to like size the other side up. And the other side has an interest in never being underestimated. To signal as much strength as you can, right? Exactly. Exactly. You'd like to be overestimated. You never want to be underestimated. It's like having and, all the fake
1: soldiers circulate on the battlements, right? In yeah. different outfits to project exactly, exactly. strength. Exactly.
0: But there are limits to that, right? There's a strong argument to say that I think there was a piece recently written in a, a blog and online journal called War on the Rocks. A piece recently written that made, I think, a very persuasive argument that the initial invasion of Ukraine was run by the intelligence side, by the FSB, not by the Ministry of Defense. They gambled on this being basically a a lightning strike kind of invasion, grab the Capitol. The the way they they did not settle in for a long invasion, they just basically put all their chips on and see if we can grab the Capitol quickly and either kill the president or have him get on a plane at which point Ukrainians will surrender, which I actually think was a possible outcome. It was a lot less plausible than they, I think they predicted it to be. And then they strangely didn't really have a plan B, which is the bizarre thing. But I think this was a gamble given the uncertainty of just how lucky and resistant Ukrainians would be that they'd actually be able to to essentially exercise some kind of almost coup d'etat. And partly that was their bias and misperception, which is another one of the five, which we haven't gotten to, but I think it was also just a product of the uncertainty.
1: Right. And you actually mentioned things like agonistic displays in there somewhere, yeah. right? Which is what the animals will do when they encounter one another. They'll kind of size each other up and pretty much do anything they can to avoid having to fight, right? Yeah. Through displays of strength, but that, that can get you trapped. I think you mentioned Saddam Hussein, right? Who was trying to communicate strength by leaving some uncertainty around the weapon of mass destruction. But then he he got trapped because at that point he couldn't, he he couldn't, you know, reveal his weakness. To me, like, uncertainty is really
0: important because if you're just, if there's just two parties to the dispute and then your incentives to reveal your hand are actually pretty strong, like, at the end of the day, you just don't want to go to war. And then if you start fighting, the incentives to stop fighting are very high when there's just you and one other disputant. But if you've got a whole bunch of other onlookers, then all of a sudden your willingness to sort of show your hand, especially if it's not a particularly strong hand and your willingness to stop fighting erode somewhat. Because if you have a shot at actually at pulling off the bluff and once your bluff is called, fighting long enough to make it look like that bluff was credible all along and basically gambling every time that the other side will concede. You only ever make that gamble because you think there's some payoff. And so the point I make in the book, which is a point made by a lot of historians and political scientists and journalists who observe this, is Saddam Hussein wasn't even America's number one enemy. Saddam Hussein was maybe number four or five. He was, you know, he was worried about Iran. He was worried about Israel, most of all, he was worried about his own generals. And he was worried about people in his own country, the Shiites and the Kurds who had risen up against him many times. And so he has all of these other people who place, in some sense are much more imminent threat to him than he believed the United States to be. And so he's playing this game with the United States with this dangerous audience looking onwards, and he's thinking any misstep I make with the United States, even if I avert this U.S. invasion, or even if they bomb my capital, and I don't think they're ever going to do more than that, at least I'll have convince these other guys how tough I am.
1: Now, you talk about how humans are fundamentally cooperative. I I interviewed Richard Wrangham and Mm -hmm. he said, if you put a 600 chimpanzees on a plane and flew them across the country, you know, they'd rip each other to pieces. (laughs) You You put humans on there and we safely make it. To the other side, and you have a lot of examples of this tendency to try and resolve conflict. And one of my favorite examples that you talked about were the rezons, right, the, the patios in yeah. you know the folks at the prisons in Medellin, and how they were able to kind of broker peace among the different kind of gangs on, yeah. on the streets of Medellin. So, if you're in law enforcement, right, and your goal is to kind of keep the peace on the streets, then Your goal should be to facilitate cooperation to some degree, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than to dispel it, right? And you see this with prisons, right? Where the prisoners organize themselves into these hierarchies and, you know, the guards will kind of let them be, right? And leave them alone and allow some kind of self-governance and self-management. I think a lot of people would find that a bit counterintuitive. They would think, oh, you know, you have to crack down on criminals. You have to arrest them under all circumstances. Maybe, you know, keep them apart. Don't let them talk to each other. But you describe a very different situation. Could you dig into that and how did you do work on that? Because you go into some very difficult places and have some difficult conversations. That one sounded particularly interesting.
0: Yeah. So like living in anarchy is terrible because there's this uncertainty. And one of the ways you maintain your security amidst all this uncertainty about how resolved you are is by basically building the violent reputation. It's far nicer, right? And that's how many societies operate, not just in prison or in gangs, but... In a lot of ancient herder societies, a lot of modern societies that are, that where the state is somewhat absent, they create these cultures of honor in other sort of blood feud systems that essentially create what some anthropologists call blood, the peace, and the feud.
1: One of the most interesting fun facts in the book was that the further you were from a Mountie station in Canada, the more prone you were to interpersonal violence. And exactly. it wasn't just simply that you were afraid of being arrested, it was just that your propensity towards, um, right. Poor anger management, let's call it, was great.
0: Well, it's also reputational. I mean, like we talked about these, you might pursue intangible incentives like glory and honor. You, you also have a reputational incentive to construct. So glory and honor might just actually, and, and codes of honor might be sort of social norms that have evolved because it's strategically optimal in a situation of anarchy. And so amidst uncertainty, humans have developed all sorts of customs that then look like these intangible incentives, but are actually sort of like social evolutionarily, like optimal responses to the absence of a state. Okay, so in this anarchic environment, whether for calculated reasons or just instinctually, we've been socialized to sort of construct violent reputations. but everybody in that situation likes to have the Mounties to some extent, right? Because if you have the Mounties come in and provide order for a hundred years, then you don't have to sort of, you don't need peace in the feud. You just have peace because of there's this sort of benevolent overlord. And so this is to some extent what emerges in a lot of prisons. And it happens in the United States, happens here in Illinois and California and Texas, large prison systems where you're at risk of personal violence a great deal of the time. And it happens in Medellin, Colombia, which is a place I work. And so what you see is like the emergence of order, because everybody likes to have their social relationships structured in such a way that avoids this really terrible thing, which is violence. And so criminals are willing to give power to other criminals who are able to provide them governance. And then states sometimes realize, not all of them, the United States, we tend to figure we don't need this. And so they do their best to exterminate it. But other places have decided, you know what, like that kind of order We'll take that because it's it just means there's less violence as a result. And so we'll make implicit, like quid pro quo's, or sometimes we'll make explicit deals with these criminal organizations that you keep the peace over there and we'll
1: leave you alone. And so it's a really common solution to this like situation of anarchy. Now another country you've done work in is Liberia, mm-hmm. right? And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that work because, th- you know, there's a society that really broke down into a lot of ethnic violence and has been sort of precariously peaceful for Mm -hmm. you know the last decade or more and i was wondering what are some of the things that are necessary in order to kind of keep the peace institutionally yeah
0: well so liberia like any country you know there's lots of social cleavages there were many ethnic groups and religions but there were also a big diversion between the elite and the rest, and the elite being of people who are more associated with American colonizers, although these are Black American colonizers. Liberia was founded by free Blacks moving in a Back to Africa movement and being self-governing for the last roughly, you know, 100 and gosh, 170 years plus. And so relationship of elite, non-elite inequality. So, but really it was a hyper-centralized place with an unchecked leader. And that creates a few problems. One is that it's like, as soon as power is super centralized, it's attractive to seize because, and it's seizeable, right? You can't really affect a coup d'etat in the United States because there's no single center of power to seize. But in a lot of highly personalized dictatorships, like Liberia was at the time, power is very seizeable. And then these unchecked leaders, both the one who wants to seize that power and the one who holds that unchecked power have fewer disincentives for war because of these unchecked interests that we've just talked about. And so I went there after the war. I was invited there by a past president and a political scientist who's a mentor of mine, who, this is his thesis. I mean, this is really who I learned this from, that over power was the most fundamental problem that led to the war. And then things broke down occasionally along ethnic or religious lines because there has to break down along some social cleavage. And that was the social cleavage that had happened along. But to me, that wasn't the fundamental problem.
1: Well, if you look at the emergence of the European states, right, and mm-hmm. the decentralization of power and the creation of checks and balances this process happened over a long period of time it, it seems like to the extent that we have sort of foreign policy foreign aid that is attempting to kind of help these countries the idea of creating these checks and balances doesn't seem to be high on the priority list right why is that is it just that the establishment finds it easier to deal with centralized authorities you know you've one institution that you can kind of funnel the money through and so forth like is it or is it just we failed to acknowledge the importance of checks and balances in the political system
0: I mean, I think both. I mean, it's funny because checks and balances are so fundamental to the American system of government so mm-hmm. fundamental to many Western governments. But I think we fail to recognize just how stabilizing the force that is in the long run, even if, because in the short run, it's super inefficient, right? For America, sort of mired in inability to get anything done because of these checks and balances. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of a feature, not a bug. And it's actually was designed that way. So if you're a rich nation dealing with a nation, there is a certain convenience to dealing with a dictator because they can get things done. There can be these great leaps forward. Unfortunately, for every great leap forward, there's one and sometimes two great leaps back. And we do seem to have a certain blindness to this. There's an allure to the strong man. And this harkens back to some of that work I was telling you, like there's a sort of romanticization of the Lee Kuan There's a certain selection. We kind of remember the successes and we overlook the failures. What we actually overlook is the fact that most of the great successes turn into failures. Right, that these people bring their country up and they bring their country down. Mostly as they cling on to power rather than trying to institutionalize what they've built. And maybe just the short-term focus of a lot of it's funny. You work with the US government and they at the one time they'll they like to get things done with these strong men. And then they're just so frustrated by the corruption and the ways in which things get misused. They, I think there's like a failure to recognize that the two are intermingled.
1: Well, is, is there a way to help build up sort of the counterbalances? Because, I mean, it doesn't seem like a winning strategy to sort of say to a leader, OK, we're only going to deal with you if you give away all your power, right? I mean, that, right. that doesn't seem like it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. Are there a ways lot of
0: international think- development and a lot of international political assistance is actually trying to decentralize power in a really, I think productive way. And it's all meddling, right? But I think it's, a lot of it's well-intentioned meddling. Anytime you're trying to economically empower the masses or raise mass literacy, I think you're inherently decentralizing power. You're improving the mobilizational and the material power of the non-elites versus the elites. And that seems like there are very few downsides to that. Anytime that... An activist group or an outside party tries to help political parties organize greater, to have there be freer and more transparent elections, to help foster institutions of election monitoring. There are lots of things that on the margin, I think, act to check the power of these centralized elites. Now there's lots of things that, there's lots of outside meddling that accentuates the power of elites. You know, the fact that international institutions can only land and treat with sovereigns, for example, and they can't make a deal with a mayor and they can't make a deal with a state governor, for example, that concentrates a lot of power in these societies. But really it's not just like the outside meddlers. Like, I mean, there's a lot of inside. Anyone who wants to reform their own society, any Nigerian or Liberian or Iraqi or Russian or American or whomever wants to sort of reform their own society because they think it's too centralized and corrupt and problematic. I think also does well to sort of think about how you decentralize power. And basically give more material or mobilizational might to the non-elites. And a lot of what we do is really successful at that. And I would argue that's been not just better for policy and people's well-being, but it's better for political stability.
1: Now, and one of the things you also talk about is how do you build up these kind of interdependence relationships and cross-cutting identities. And this seems very attractive, very appealing, of course, but it also, it seems very fragile, right? When we look at what happened in, say, Bosnia, right, where... You had these people that were neighbors, and they were interacting for for centuries, and then all of a sudden, this conflict happens, and then they sort themselves very quickly into these camps that are defined by identities that they may not have even possessed at any point in time. You had some wonderful examples where, some empirical examples of when during the football games, right, in Africa, right, where, you know, the Cameroonian team has a victory that the inter country violence goes down after these matches. How can you build these identities that that go across the prior ethnic lines or other kind of divisions in the society? So with the Balkan example, I mean, I think what you're pointing out is that there's no
0: magic solution to intergroup tensions, that there are examples of neighbor killing neighbor and lots of sorting. I think we have to be careful and sort of not focusing on the wars that happen and paying attention to the wars that do. We have to focus on I think all of the cases, and, and I think on average, a lot of the evidence shows that intermingling and being intertwined economically and intertwined socially is protective, and it's protective because it gives you a stake in the other side's well-being. And to go to war with them would cause even more harm, would shrink the pie even further because you're intermingled. And so it's almost like you care about their costs, right? Because the costs of war that keep us from fighting are really just our own costs. We don't care about the other side's costs. If you do care about the other side's costs, then it's inherently going to be protective. But it's like speed bumps on your street. You know, you still might get a speeder. Right. It's not a surefire solution. And so you're gonna get, you're gonna get Balkans, I think, just like you get speeders. And then as for how you construct these things, I mean, in the book, I talked about long-term and short-term solutions.
1: The, the example you used yeah. from Mali and how that worked. A thousand yeah. Years.
0: There's, I mean, you, uh, so Mali, is the ancient Malian example of an emperor who actually decides to sort of create like a social linkage based on surnames across basically similar surnames that have, you know, if I'm a tailor in this language, and my last name is Taylor in this other language, like we're going to sort of be cousins and create this tradition called Cousinage. And so the myth, which is probably partly true, is that this was a deliberate construction to create sort of these cross linkages. So that anytime when I went to this other ethnic group and I interacted with them, I would always have this sort of natural social relationship instead of Mm -hmm. expectations that I would always be connected to somebody and that the places where Cousinages were common in Mali have been more peaceful. Nations try to construct national identities to reduce intergroup conflict within their country. And so your example of national sports teams and other ways of creating national identity, this might actually create tensions with other nations, but the idea is that it's actually going to strengthen intergroup relationships in your own.
1: Yeah, I mean, you see it for local teams, right? For instance, when immigrants come to European countries or to America, right? If one of the ways that they can help integrate themselves is to start following a football team or... Basketball team, and And then those crowds of supporters, the ethnic differences seem to kind of disappear, blend away, at least in those moments when the sports teams are playing, right?
0: Yeah, and Amos Sawyer, this Liberian former president and political scientist who I was mentioning, went back after the war, and he had some ideas. He wanted to create symbols of national identity that were shared. So he thought it was really problematic that, like, the, the national coat of arms for Liberia was a ship sort of saying that the love of liberty brought us here, right? That was, mm-hmm. that that symbol is very powerful if you're an American Liberian, if you're descended from one of the free blacks that, that migrated in this Back to Africa movement 170 years ago, it's profoundly alienating to everyone else in the population for this to be the national symbol. And so there's this whole series of things that he wanted to do to construct national symbols and construct national identity that would unify rather than amplify these social cleavages and basically to sort of erode social cleavages. And so there's, I think there's a lot that can be done. I I think there's a, on the margin, right? But of course, you know, this is a long-term project and some leaders will come to power, particularly unchecked leaders who will have an incentive to do the reverse, to polarize us rather than
1: sort of bring us together. Now, I think you end the book with a whole section on what it means to be a piecemeal engineer. I think this discussion could be applied to a whole bunch of different areas of economics and political science, right? I mean, you kind of build on Popper and Jane Jacobs and Hume and a whole bunch of other folks, yeah. but you emphasize this idea of humility, right? And yeah. I think you, you're pointing out that there's an under-provision of humility in the kind of, I guess, foreign policy space or in the peacemaking space or even in the kind of intervention space when you're dealing with crime, when you're dealing with gangs, when, when you're dealing yeah. with conflict of all sorts, and you advocate sort of a more experimental approach. So, I mean, I think this idea of design thinking has taken over in business world. What are the impediments to it taking Mm -hmm. over in the policy world?
0: So I wrote that, you know, a lot of books like this die in the last chapter. They either provide some grand optimistic vision of peace or human progress in a 10 step. Now we know, now we have the answers. Here's the 10 things you can do to create peace, or they're just deeply pessimistic and we're done for, we're all going to die. And neither one of those things is actually true. There's no 10 step plan for peace. I think there is a pretty simple set of ideas that can help us diagnose better. But then it's like being a doctor. We don't exactly know exactly what the treatment's going to be. And we also, in each case, we just don't, we'll have to figure, we, we have the tools for diagnosis, but now the actual process of diagnosis is really complicated. And so. If you went to your doctor and you started to describe your symptoms and he interrupted you and said, what you need is radiation therapy and Tylenol, you know, you would say, this sounds crazy to me. Like, you haven't even really heard about my problems. We haven't tried anything. Like, you haven't tried to sort of narrow down all the possibilities and then test out one by one with different treatments to sort of see what's responding, right? Which is... If, and if our doctor did that, we would just, we would naturally recognize that this was a, we would never go back to that doctor. We would look for a doctor who's sort of taking this sort of careful marginal trial and error approach and is, has a degree of humility. When we are asking our leaders to solve problems of development or change our cities or solve racism or solve conflict which is much more complex. We have this totally different set of expectations. We kind of want them to come to us and promise us that Tylenol and radiation therapy are the answer, and all we need is more of them, and all situations are like, And Tylenol radiation therapy worked for that country, or this city, or that people, so it must work for us. And I don't know why we have that, why we accept that, and why we're like that in, in these two different spheres of life. And I think we just have this amazing ability to forget how hard and complex a problem is, a lot of social change. And so part of the book is just trying to say, let's take all these principles that we know that are commonsensical and we know are true in all these other domains, and let's realize how they're true in solving conflict as well and how it changes how you want to approach the problem.
1: Now, I have to ask one last question because you cited Bill Buford, right? Mm-hmm. in his famous book, Among the Thugs. And I read that a long time ago. And I think it brings up something that's, that makes us a bit uncomfortable, which is that for many people, the violence and war really is exhilarating, right? It makes them kind of feel alive. Right, Mm -hmm. And countless testimonies from soldiers and warriors throughout human history. And of course, Ned, it's probably, you know, there's far more people that have miserable experiences in warfare. And you even talk about the fighter pilots and how the vast majority of them died, but they still kept attracting new fighter pilots because of the pursuit of glory and status. Do you think that's a fundamental human obstacle to peace? Or is that something that's kind of easy to divert into other channels i think that we can be motivated
0: to hate an enemy or take glory in a cause so it goes a little bit back to these intangible incentives that we can be we do possess these to some degree and our leaders can manipulate us to hold them and they can manipulate us to hold them for their own purposes and as well as for bargaining strength that this idea that I can convince my population to be intransigent or glory seeking or loathe the other side, then it's going to shut off all sorts of bargains and that's going to put us in a better place. And so fundamentally, this is a can be an impediment to cooperation, but I think what you point out is that the actual experience of violence is often so different that we don't need to experience very much of it to sort of have some of these illusions dispelled. Now that sadly, that might mean we need several months of violence, but typically we don't need several years in many societies and situations we maybe need a single day so so that's perhaps the good news and then the other piece of good news is sort of what you alluded to later is that i think often these powers are used for good and not evil and so they they're the same tools used to construct successful societies and ideas of not just national unity but international human rights and so i think these things have been used to be pacifying but yes we're we can fool ourselves, but more importantly, we can be fooled by unchecked, over-centralized leaders into pursuing their interests against our own far too often. And I would say, it so So, to me, the be much less vulnerable in a more checked
1: and balanced political system is my hypothesis, but to be determined. Well, Chris, I think this is a very timely book, and it's a great work of history, political science, economics, conflict studies, all of that. And I think it might give rise to a whole new subspecialization within the field of economics. Maybe we can have a weekly workshop or seminar on conflict and war and violence. Why we fight. Check it out. Roots of War and the Path to Peace. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at podcast dot com.